Hi, and welcome to Talking With Cancer. I'm Katie, and I'm here to give you an honest, real, and even funny outlook on living with cancer. There is no one way to do cancer, and I've decided to share my story to help and inspire others, as well as raise awareness. At age 43, I was diagnosed with a rare type of thyroid cancer known as hobnail in February 2022, having never had any health issues previously. I was fit and well and took pretty good care of myself. But despite that, I got a diagnosis and I am on a long-term treatment plan. On this podcast, I will be sharing my progress regularly. And I often speak to amazing guests who've been impacted by cancer in some way. I really hope you enjoy listening. And if you do, then please rate, review, follow and recommend the pod. Hello, listeners. How are you all today? I did a workshop last week, which was great. It was a myth busting workshop talking about myths around cancer versus the reality, all obviously from my own personal experience, not that I am a medical expert, not that I am a science expert, but obviously I've gone through quite a lot by the way of treatment and an understanding of the cancer that I have and a little bit of an understanding of the wider landscape of cancer, given the amazing people that I've interviewed on this podcast. So it was a great experience to share intimately. There are about 10 other people there, my story. But also what was lovely was that it became a bit of a conversation and a bit of a kind of sharing discussion, which felt really good. And there was a mix of people in the room. And yeah, I was sort of pretty chuffed to be honest that people turned up so thank you to the people that came if you're listening to this and it was a sort of members only event so obviously I'm sorry that I couldn't open that up to my wider audience but I've taken some of the audio and that's going to feature on the episode today I will play a chunk of that for you now and then we'll have a little catch up at the end as we always do Hi everyone, welcome. It's so nice to have you. I just thought this might be a useful workshop for people just to kind of share my own experience with cancer. I guess some of the myths that I went into that diagnosis with that I've since learned are not true and there's a lot of false myths around cancer and a cancer journey and experience and treatment. So I thought that I would share some of my own learning. I've written down a load of myths, but they're not in any particular order. I mean, I don't want to kind of repeat myself if you've come across the podcast, but it's probably useful just to give you a little bit of a backstory. Last February in 2022, I was diagnosed with a rare type of thyroid cancer. And that diagnosis, I would say it came pretty out the blue. I'd never had any health issues prior to that. I really was kind of fit and young and healthy at the age of 43. I went to see a doctor with a very persistent cough and a lump on the side of my neck that had grown. And even though like up to that point, I had for various other reasons had quite regular blood tests through that time, the cancer was never detected. 
And the only way really that it was seen just prior to my diagnosis with all the tests I had was through an ultrasound scan. So it was that I thought that I had something like some kind of chest problem because of this cough. But actually, it turned out that the cancer was in my thyroid and had metastasized quite a lot. So the reason that I was coughing was because these cancerous lymph nodes, because that was sort of how the cancer was traveling through my body, had swollen to quite an extent. I mean, you know, they were these tumors, essentially, that were blocking my windpipe, and that was causing the cough. And I also had quite a bit of cancer in the lung at that time. But all of it, it transpired, was thyroid cancer. I guess, in a way, that brings me on to the first myth, which is that I always thought that if you had cancer, it would show up in your blood. Because I was having quite regular blood tests, I was actually going through a fertility journey prior to the diagnosis. I thought, if anything was seriously wrong, if this cough and this lump were anything serious, that would have come up because I was having these regular blood tests. So again, like, it feels like that's an ignorant thing to think, but that's sort of a message that we all get. So really, for me, the only way that they diagnosed me was with a scan and essentially with an ultrasound and then with an MRI. If someone had thought, you know, this concerns me and potentially there's a thyroid cancer issue, there are tumor marker blood tests. So don't get me wrong, like I have what's called a thyroglobulin test and that is sort of is my tumor marker, if you like. So but you'd have to be quite specific about the type of cancer you have. And I think that's probably, yeah, part of that myth as well, if you like. The other point about that is that when you go through cancer treatment, you also assume that the team looking after you are covering everything that's going on with your body. And that's a, another thing that I have experienced and kind of got myself quite paranoid about it in a way. I just thought, OK, I'm being treated by a head and neck team. I was actually being treated by a lung team as well because there was so much cancer in the lung and also the type of cancer that I have is actually brought on by a mutating gene. <laughs> it's quite confusing. And that gene that I have is mainly found in lung cancer. So I basically decided, even though I was being treated at the Royal Marsden, which is amazing cancer hospital, which some of you might have heard of, I'd never heard of it before. I didn't know anything about it. So even though I was going there, I was like, what if I have cancer somewhere else? Like, they actually won't know. Because even though I was going for scans quite regularly once I started the treatment, you hear lots of different stories about how, OK, you're getting treated for one cancer, but actually it might show up completely unrelated somewhere else. So one of the things that I did was I went to get a genetic blood test. Yeah, I don't know if we've heard about that. It's not something that you can get just directly on the NHS. But if you find a genetic counsellor, they will test your blood for essentially a gene that is in your DNA. So this is something that you might be born with that might then increase your chances of getting a certain type of cancer. And again, it was this thought of, you know, I'm being treated for one thing, but what if I take my eye off the ball and don't check everything else? So I went and got this genetic blood test, which showed I actually do have a gene called the CHECK2 gene. You might have heard of the BRCA gene. That's a bit more common. 
the HER2 gene is another one that seems to get quite a lot of quite a lot of people know about that one as well. But I've got the CHECK2 one, which means it's 30% more likely to get breast cancer or colon cancer or prostate cancer if you're a man. So then what you do if you do come out with one of those genes is you then get screened more regularly than you perhaps would or earlier than you perhaps would through your GP or through the NHS. So now I have to have yearly mammograms and a colonoscopy every five years. It's just so bizarre because even that, I don't think I ever would have done that test had I not had this diagnosis and kind of thought, I think I need to just take stock of my whole body and my whole life. And I think in a way that is part of what I talk about a lot on the podcast, which is essentially self-advocacy. It's a big part of my cancer journey. It's not about undermining my medical team. It's not about suggesting they don't know what they're doing or talking about. I fully trust them. But it's about thinking about other things in addition to what they're doing. They can't do everything. They can only do the job that they're there to do. So if I can take on board a more kind of holistic approach to my health, then maybe we can like work as a team more. And that's sort of been my approach really. So I am now on my third type of treatment. So the previous treatments that I took, they stopped working after a period of time. And then they would test me again. They would do another biopsy, which is another really useful thing to share with you all because my oncologist would say, it could be that the drugs just stop working or actually it's that the cancer's evolved. That's essentially what's happened. Or it could be that the cancer's changed so much that this treatment wouldn't be right for it. So to then do another biopsy, like your cancer can change. Mm. So it is quite, again, it's quite a good thing to ask. Like, would you test me again? Like, how do we know that the biopsy you did six months ago is gonna show up as the same? So I wanted to talk a bit about chemotherapy because I think there's a myth around what chemotherapy is. And I take chemotherapy, but I don't take it as an IV. Chemotherapy literally just means like cancer therapy, cancer treatment. It's become known as something that people get through a drip and you have to you know, take that in hospital and be closely monitored. It comes in all different shapes and sizes. Mine comes as a drug. I take a pill every day and that is my cancer treatment. And it's quite a new type of treatment that I take. It's a targeted treatment. So every time I've been given a treatment, it's come in that form. It's come as a drug and it's a targeted treatment. The first one that I took actually only got approved in 2019. So that's kind of how new they are as a drug. It is kind of amazing that I can take a pill every evening from the comfort of my own home. I guess some of the anxiety I have around that is it's not been around long enough to know like the long-term effects. And at the moment I'm being told like, this is a drug that I'm on for the rest of my life or for as long as it works, I should say, I suppose. But yeah, we don't know what those long-term side effects are. And that's the thing about like treatment and how toxic it is that you don't know. And even though my experience was always to take a medical route, even though I'm now on a, an integrative plan, if you like, a treatment, I can understand why some people resist it because of 
all the other impacts that it has on you. And I think, you know, I can only obviously, again, speak from my experience. So, well, the first drug that I took, it was purely to shut down the ROS1 gene. So actually a lot of lung cancer patients take this drug, Ontrectinib. And it affected your neurological pathways as well. So it like a lot of the side effects was like faint and dizzy and more like mental stuff, neurological stuff. And that did work. That worked pretty well to the extent that it could shrink the cancer. That meant it was operable because at the time of my diagnosis, because there was so much, it was pushing against my blood vessels that it was like a life-threatening surgery. So they just did not want to proceed with that. I don't even think they would have found a surgeon who would have done it. So it worked, it worked pretty effectively and it shrunk the cancer by about 25%. And then I had this surgery. The most common treatment for thyroid cancer is a radioactive iodine treatment, which is basically where you're given a radioactive pill and you are put in a room for three days. <laughs> you're not allowed to interact with anyone. Yeah, it's pretty grim. In a weird way, that was probably one of my worst experiences of treatment. I had a little window that looked out into a car park. You had to strip your bed every morning, give them all your towels and everything you'd worn, and then you'd have to make your bed. And then in the ceiling, there were monitors that measured how radioactive you were. So it was really amazing. So you would lie on your bed, they would come, they'd be like outside your door in a corridor, a bit like Wizard of Oz, he'd be on a screen, he'd say, get in your position, please. So you'd lie on the bed and then he would see like how much, I'd say, how radioactive am I today? I was told like, drink as much as you can. The more you can pee out, the more you're getting rid of that stuff at your body. So I was just peeing constantly. So yeah, that, the radioactive iodine, because I know thyroid and iodine are linked, but I don't know the science of it, I'm afraid. But very often that's what people are given to treat it. And essentially it takes a period of time to work. So it's not like you take that and then, you know, you can see everything starting to work. It takes like three, four, five, six months for that radioactive iodine to kind of go around your body and basically like to kill off all the cancer essentially. But the way that you can tell if it's going to work is as soon as you've done that and you've done the isolation, you go and you have a scan, you have a full body scan and they can see if anything's responding, if you like. And I didn't respond to it at all. So it wasn't an effective treatment. So I did three days in isolation for nothing. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty grim. So anyway, I went back on this on Trectinib and it carried on working. So it worked in total for about seven or eight months, I would say. And then that stopped working and they found me another type of targeted treatment. Again, a pill that I took. But this time they said, let's focus more on the thyroid cancer and not so much on the ROS1. So this drug was essentially like cutting the blood supply to the thyroid cancer. Um, that was a treatment I struggled a lot with. It was called Lenvatinib. I was very nauseous from it. I had a really bad cough because there was so much cancer building up in my lungs. And basically after six months, it stopped working. So they put me on the third type of treatment, which is what I'm on now, which is called Cabizantinib. Prior to that treatment, I started to think about things like radical remission which I don't know if anyone's heard about radical remission, but it's basically studies of people who've been told they have an incurable cancer or a terminal cancer and through various factors that they do in their life, that cancer then goes. And it's sort of an unexplained thing, but it's, it happens. There's studies about it and it happens. And I'm not saying it's like there's this kind of magic spell and the cancer goes, 
these people have all stayed on their medical treatment, but they've done certain things in their lifestyle. So there's a woman called Kelly Turner. She was actually a counsellor and she counselled cancer patients. But what she was finding was that she would come across these kind of patients. I got very interested in that, basically, and I just thought, like, there are certain narratives that we are told in a diagnosis. And, again, I'm not saying those narratives are untrue, but I decided not to follow the path of the narrative that I was told, basically, which was that I'm on palliative care, because that triggers narratives about it being the end of your life. But palliative care essentially is care that you need to keep on living, let's say. There's different ways you could look at that. And I started this treatment, having read up a lot about radical remission and having s sort of decided to, yeah, change the narrative that I'd been told, which was that I had an incurable but treatable cancer. I wasn't given a stage. I wasn't given a prognosis. I wasn't even told that it was terminal. I could read between the lines, essentially. And after two months on the most recent treatment that I started taking, I got a completely clear scan. So this scan that I had showed a complete response to the treatment. So I'm staying on the treatment because as far as the doctors are concerned, you know, the treatment's working, which it is, obviously. But that's sort of been my experience of this kind of treatment. I suppose what I'd always thought when I got my diagnosis was, you know, I will be going down a path where I will be in hospital to get my treatment, all the side effects that people see that come with that. That wasn't my experience. That wasn't my version of treatment for me. So again, I think like, one of the things people said to me when I got my diagnosis is treatment is amazing. Like you have to have hope. There is unbelievable treatment and it's progressing all the time and in a way I didn't find those words of hope helpful because I was like you don't know what the doctors are saying like what they're saying is really serious this is like not a good prognosis but now a year and a half on I would say exactly the same like there is amazing treatment out there I know because I've interviewed the people that are doing the trials for those treatments so yeah I think that Again, it's sort of just busting that myth around like what a cancer patient might look like, what it's like to live with cancer. And to, you know, now that's not to say like on the outside you can physically look pretty well is how I feel at the moment. But of course there's so much that goes with that emotionally and so much anxiety that goes with that. So someone might tell you that they might look well with cancer. And then that was another thing I got told a lot. You look really well, you look really well. And you kind of go, mm. Don't know if that's helpful or not. You know, what do you say to someone with cancer? And I always just say, say, how are you? I think the worry is like, oh, what are they going to say back? How am I going to deal with that? But it's like, if you want to know how they are, ask them how they are. It would often come with like, I know this is a really stupid question, you know, but how are you? Yeah, it's awkward. It's really awkward to talk about it and to ask people whatever they're going through that's difficult. But I suppose you know, you have to be prepared to take the answer. That's the hard bit, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I felt the way some people responded just wasn't right for me, <laughs> you know? And I actually started to prioritise myself in that scenario. And I experienced quite a lot of toxic positivity, you know, where people were trying to make you feel better about it. And actually, no, I don't feel good about this. Like, let's just feel shit about it. Like, we have to be okay with feeling shit about it. And so I kind of, 
you know, some friends I could say, look, you're not helping. Like, you know, I'm feeling worse about the fact you're trying to show me that there's like a bright side to this. And I think that's been a really big learning is kind of surrounding yourself with the people that are going to make you feel better or know that you can just be with, essentially. I think that's the thing. Yeah. And not being afraid of losing some friends along the way. I think that is going to happen. I really looked for a community early on. I really, and I found it so hard that there was no one with a rare thyroid cancer like me. I felt like, um, you know, there was a lot of awareness of breast cancer and there seemed to be a lot of communities around breast cancer and bowel cancer because Deborah James, who was bowel babe, she'd obviously created a lot of awareness about that, but they just didn't see. And then I realized it didn't matter. Like it doesn't have to be someone with the same type of cancer as me. Like, and also that just because someone's got cancer doesn't mean I'm going to get on with him. <laughs> so I really like, I went to Maggie's, which is an amazing center. There's one near where I live in the Royal Free. They have a timetable full of stuff. I went and did the art therapy course with them and the Nordic walking and bonded with some people that were very different to me and then other people that were similar. And I think what was really interesting was that my best friend said to me, there's a whole world on Instagram of cancer patients. And I was like, what? Like this was just, I had no idea. I'd never heard of You, Me and the Big C, which was the podcast. And I didn't know anything about that. Um, but there's something quite amazing about that community, actually. There's something quite supportive about it, I've found. That even if it's just a few people that I'm on message with, that I've never even met. Obviously, the podcast has enabled people to come to me and find me, which has been really nice. And I think... Sometimes it's been really great to have that. And then other times I don't want that at all. So yeah, I do think it is quite helpful to feel like there's a community there if you need it. So I hope you liked listening to that. And I also hope that you learned something new there. Or perhaps you're in agreement with some of the things that I said, or perhaps you're in total disagreement with some of the things that I said. Either way, what I like about this podcast, I like to think that it's thought-provoking. I don't expect you to agree with everything that I say or my approach to this or how I feel or my outlook at all. But what I like to think of is that it perhaps making you, the listener, think about something you might not have thought about before or maybe you'll change your mind on an opinion that you thought you had in every which way I hope that it's useful and enjoyable which sounds bizarre doesn't it when talking about cancer something that's so difficult and challenging and hard in many 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 ways there's a lot of learning to be had around it that's what I hope you've experienced from this series, actually. I'm really, really happy with this series. I think that the range of guests I've had has been just brilliant. And I've learned so much personally from speaking to those guests, and I hope that you have too. And I've also, you know, shared quite a lot of my journey, and it's been pretty varied when I think about where I've come, really, along the way, and... Most recently, obviously, the incredible news to have experienced a clear cancer scan, which has just been a great result, one that I am utterly elated and thrilled about and can't really quite get my head around. It's a bit of a funny 
position that I'm in, I suppose. It's something that I've mentioned a few times throughout the series, which is like, what do you do when you find yourself in that position where you're told you no longer have cancer, but you're never going to be the same person that you were? And maybe you don't want to be the same person that you were. I know I certainly don't, because I feel like, what have I gone through all this for if I'm going to be exactly the same person that I was when I first got my diagnosis. So gosh, it's been a incredibly life-changing journey for me. I have learned so much about myself and how I see the world and how I interact with people and the things that I value and the things that I connect with and the things that I don't connect with. I think that living with cancer and experiencing cancer in the way that I have has meant shifting really perspective on a lot of things mainly I would say it's been about prioritizing me I've mentioned this before I mentioned this in the audio that I played earlier from the workshop like a big learning for me was asking that question you know how am I going to feel about this how's this going to make me feel and That was just a very good way of assessing whether an experience or a friendship or a relationship or whatever it might be was going to be good or positive or not. That's definitely been, I think, one of the big learnings for me. But yeah, going back to my point about like, how do you sit in this space of being told that you don't have cancer, but not necessarily being free to live in the world without cancer? That's the situation that I find myself in because I continue on treatment. I continue to see my medical team. You know, I'm having those checks regularly. I'm now dealing with a calcium issue that's not been resolved at all. My levels have kind of, they've gone from being steady to dropping to being steady again to dropping again. And that's extremely frustrating, extremely upsetting because... I need a sustainable long-term plan when it comes to that. And I'm not sure right now, I feel like I have one. And the reason that it is so important for me to have a realistic plan when dealing with the calcium issue, the hyperparathyroidism, but also there's something else that seems to be bringing down the calcium. And I'm not satisfied that I understand what it is that's doing that. I've been told that the cabazantinib, which is the cancer treatment I take, can lower calcium levels. But I feel like I'm taking a lot of the calcium medication and, you know, quite high doses of this stuff. And the long-term impact of that is it's not good for your kidneys and it's not good for your bones. So... I want to know why it is that my levels have been so low and then have come to a place where they're a bit sporadic. I want to understand what it is in my diet or my lifestyle, or maybe it's to do with some of the supplements that I've been taking. What is it that means that the calcium's not being maintained at a good level? I want to understand that. And I want to understand like, what are we doing about the fact that like, I can't just keep increasing the calcium medication. I can't have this conversation with my endocrinologist. I think it's taken him a couple of months to sort of really understand like my patterns and my biology, you know, that you don't just look at one set of bloods and then you understand the complete patterns of someone's body and their bloods and what's going on. I think you need 
to really kind of look at that over a period of time. So, you know, I need to understand that. And also I've got an integrative doctor now, Dr. Nina Fulashavel, who I've interviewed, and I am due another consultation with her. So that's definitely going to be a topic of conversation in that consultation is to look at the calcium and look at how we get it to a good level and what might be those external factors. So like, for example, I've read that the menopause can bring your calcium levels down. So let's look at that and see if it's something in that area that we can look at and deal with. With regards to my health, I don't get real symptoms with the calcium issue, with the hyperparathyroidism. I get a bit of pins and needles occasionally. What I've realized is that it's the fatigue that hits me. And I have come to understand there's a huge difference between fatigue and tiredness. Fatigue, like an energy drop, a general feeling that everything's an effort. You know, I can do it, but it's an effort. Tiredness is feeling like I haven't had a good night's sleep and I could maybe take a nap and I'm yawning a bit more and I know I need to have another early night. So to me, I've kind of come to understand in myself what the difference of those two things are. And I think the fatigue, if that hits, is generally my body telling me a calcium drop has happened or is happening. So, you know, it's getting to know myself, really. That's another side of it. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, like, even though I maintain... But also, like, I still feel like this is very, very early days. You know, it's been two months since I was told that I had a clear scan. And that's really, really soon. You know, that's no time at all. Unfortunately, had experience before where I've been on treatment and it's worked for a period of time. So there are all these questions for me. You know, is this just a period of time? Is this forever? Do I need to stay on the cancer treatment? Like what happens? So on the one hand, I feel like there is still so much to process about what I've gone through and where I am now. And like, what does the future look like? What do I want to do? How do I want to spend my time? I've got a lot to process. I don't even know how to process this. I've talked about my holiday where I thought about nothing and it was fantastic. And then I thought, hang on a minute. I've pretty much sat down every week and talked about what I've been going through since the beginning of my diagnosis on this podcast. I'm not sure how much more processing I can do, to be honest. Like, that's quite a lot of processing, I think. So maybe I need to listen back, reading a diary excerpt and remembering where I've been and how far I've come and the learnings along the way. So I feel incredibly lucky that I have got a record of this whole experience. And it's great to dip in and out of those different chapters. So who knows? Like, who knows what processing I have to do, whether I have to do any more or whether it's all done. But it just feels like a really natural place to end the series. And, you know, I've often taken a break in between series. It's time for me to do that. There is one outstanding interview that I will be doing, which is with Lauren Mann. Um, We just haven't found a time yet to sit down together and do that chat, but we will do it. And I will either put that out on the next series or I might put that out as a special bonus episode. So listen out for that. And stay in touch, like stay in touch, even though I'm having a break for a bit. I love to hear from you. So please do get in touch. You can send me an email to hello at talkingwithcancer.com. That's hello at talkingwithcancer.com. You can 
reach me on Instagram. I'm on there as talking underscore with cancer and get in touch that way. I love to hear from people. I love to get messages in my DMs. So yeah, those are two ways that you can reach me. I have a fundraising page, which is talking with cancer fund on the Just Giving website. I'd love it if you could donate anything at all to either both or one of the two charities I support, the Royal Marsden Cancer Charity and Maggie's Centre. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, it's just a way of giving something back. So I would really, really appreciate that. If you want to know more about me, I've got a website, which is talkingwithcancer.com. And as always, thank you for being here and for listening. It's been great. I've very much enjoyed hosting this podcast and I very much enjoyed having you there to listen as well. Thanks so much. Loads of love. And I'll see you guys soon. Bye.